Good morning, everyone. My name is Jan Klobras. I'm a professor of international law at the University of Helsinki. And I'm here to talk about treaty conflict. Conflicts uh, between treaties, when treaties give different rules to parties, meaning that a party might be in a situation where under one treaty it has to do something which would be prohibited under another treaty. Now, that's a problematic issue in international law. It's uh, problematic because there is no authoritative case law on the topic. There have been a few early cases of the Permanent Court of International Justice, perhaps mostly the Oscar Chin case, 1934, but that didn't really pay much attention to the issue. And there are some cases from other courts, the European Court of Justice, the European Court of Human Rights, but none of them giving us a final solution to the problem. There is no, in other words, no one-size-fits-all rule in international law. Now, we'll get back to that in a moment, but first it might be useful to figure out what causes treaty conflicts. What are the reasons why states find themselves in the awkward position of having an obligation under one treaty which is irreconcilable with an obligation under another treaty? Sometimes that might simply be the result of mischief, that the state doesn't really care much, that the state doesn't, uh, can't be bothered, you might say, and just decides for the heck of it. Like, we know fully well we have a treaty with another state. We nonetheless conclude a treaty with a different state, and if that uh, leads to a bad result, so be it. That's one possible explanation, but not the most plausible, not the most obvious in practice. A more obvious and far more um, recurrent phenomenon is what you might call a bureaucratic lack of awareness. Treaties are concluded no longer just by uh, foreign ministries, by, through the regular diplomatic channels. Treaties are increasingly also concluded by experts in uh, environmental ministries, in justice departments, defense departments, trade departments. And it goes without saying that people in the trade department of a country are not necessarily always aware of what their colleagues in the environmental department have just agreed two weeks ago with a neighboring state. So, bureaucratic lack of awareness, I guess, would be the most obvious explanation for treaty conflicts to occur. And sometimes, that's a third possible explanation, and not completely implausible, sometimes states engage in treaty conflicts for strategic reasons. They have a treaty, typically a multilateral treaty, they're not terribly happy with it, so they try to force their hand, you might say, or force their partners in the treaty to come up with a different solution by already starting that process and conclude treaties that are irreconcilable with the earlier ones. One possible example um, from the last couple of years might be the immunity agreements concluded by the US out of a certain dissatisfaction with the International Criminal Court statute. Uh, trying to force others or trying to persuade others, force is a bit of a pejorative term here, and I don't mean it pejoratively, trying to persuade others to take a different route. That might happen when a state is a party to a treaty already. It might also happen, as in this case, when the US was not a party to the International Criminal Court, it still decided that it would be in its benefit to change the regime by creating treaties 
that would be difficult to reconcile with the ICC statute. So, so much for the causes of treaty conflict. Now, treaties, the operation of treaties, the conclusion of treaties, the termination of treaties, the interpretation, application of treaties, are generally governed by one single convention. That's the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. So obviously, one would expect it to say a few things about treaty conflict as well, and it does. It specifies that there are various possible ways of trying to solve treaty conflicts. I'm trying to do this a bit systematically, which means that I have to repeat myself once or twice, but I hope that's okay. Um, Article 30 of the Vienna Convention is the pertinent provision here. And its first paragraph allows for the United Nations Charter to prevail over other treaties. That's not a big surprise, because that's written down in the United Nations Charter itself. It has what you might call, somewhat colloquially, a supremacy clause in Article 103, which specifies that if there's a case of conflicting obligations, then obligations under the Charter shall prevail. That's a provision going back to 1945, or actually even earlier, the League of Nations Covenant had a similar article. Um, and is codified in paragraph 1 of Article 30 of the Vienna Convention. So clearly the UN Charter has a specific position. It has a supreme position, one might say. Um, now obviously by its very nature, you cannot do that with all treaties. You cannot have a multitude of treaties all claiming that they are supreme. Because then, of course, you need a rule to figure out who is more supreme than anyone else. So, this only applies, there's general agreements about that in, in practice and in the literature, this only applies to the UN Charter. That it's, um, it has an amount of supremacy over conflicting obligations. The second possible approach, also laid down in um, Article 30, paragraph 2 this time, is that a treaty may allow itself to be considered subordinate to other treaties. It may gracefully allow other treaties to, um, to be supreme over them. And possibly the leading example is the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, which in Article 351 has a fairly lengthy provision protecting the um, treaties concluded by member states of the EU with third parties before they joined the EU or before the EU was even created. So if there would be a treaty between, for instance, France, which is an EU member state, with Japan, which is not a member state, going back to the 1920s, under Article 351 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, that treaty would prevail. If there would be a treaty between Cyprus, a more recent member of the UN, uh, of the European Union, sorry, between Cyprus and Japan, uh, going back to, say, 1999, that would also predate the entry of Cyprus into the EU and thus would be protected under Article 351 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. Now, that sounds like a good idea. There are more treaties which do that, not an awful lot, but there are some. Um, but at least in the EU context, it comes with a twist. The, the case law of the EC Court has interpreted this rather narrowly. And the net effect is that even though 
on paper treaties concluded before member states joined the EU or before the EU was created. In paper, those treaties are protected. In practice, the court is very apt at finding ways of distinguishing situations so that that rule doesn't apply. So that has caused quite a bit of uh, controversy in the European Union in recent years, for instance, when member states had concluded bilateral investment treaties, which were then considered to be in violation of their obligations under the EU treaties. And thus, as a consequence, the member states were asked to get rid of those treaties, to terminate them as soon as legally possible, or to try to cajole or persuade their treaty partner into amending them. Now, those are specific situations <coughs> excuse me, specific situations where you might say that um, a hierarchical solution is chosen for either in the UN Charter, the Supremacy Clause, or then the subordination type of clause, such as Article 351 on the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. The um, other solutions provided for in the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties are maybe a bit more tricky. At least one of them is. There are two situations distinguished still. One is easy. That is in paragraph 3 of Article 30. If, a treat, if there are two treaties concluded between the same parties with conflicting obligations, then the later in time shall prevail. That's a fairly standard type of solution and makes perfect sense because the later in time, if the treaties are, uh, if the parties are identical, the later in time is probably the more accurate reflection of their current political intentions, right? That makes some sense. So if the parties are identical, then the later in time prevails. The problem then arises in particular, as you might guess by now, when the parties are not identical. When you have a configuration of three states, you have state A and state B, they have a treaty together, and state A would conclude a later treaty with state C, which is in conflict with the treaty earlier concluded between A and B. What to do then? In this case, there is no real solution. This is where the problems start to become serious. And I'll get back to that in a moment, if you'll allow me. But first, it is useful to spend a minute or two on what you might call a cognitive issue. How, how do we recognize a treaty conflict and how do we distinguish it from related phenomena? There are at least three related phenomena that one can think of. Um, all of those also um, recognized in the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. The first might be where states try to accomplish a modification inter se. That means if you have, for instance, a treaty with ten parties, eight of them might not be entirely happy with the treaty as it stands. They'd like to modify it between themselves, inter se. Is that to be regarded as a treaty conflict or is that to be regarded as a modification between a number of the parties? That's difficult. That's not always clear-cut. Such a modification inter se is allowed under Article 41 of the Vienna Convention, provided 
it does not go against the object and purpose of the treaty concerns and provided it uh, does not affect the rights of the two remaining parties in my example of 10 and 8. So that is not typically regarded as a treaty conflict, but it might sometimes be difficult to tell the difference. What, when is a situation a modification? When is it a treaty conflict? Something similar applies to what is regulated under Article 59. Sometimes parties conclude a later agreement in order to terminate an earlier one. That is a fairly straightforward matter as long as the parties are the same. As long as the parties are identical, there's not really a problem. If the parties are not identical, then we're back in the realm of treaty conflict, most likely. And then a third related issue is the subsequent agreement for purposes of interpretation. That sometimes happens that states have a large multilateral treaty and conclude a side agreement on how to interpret Article X, Y or Z of that. Now, if that side agreement is uh, compatible with the earlier agreement, so even at first sight, then there's no real problem. But sometimes you might interpret the side agreement as being um, in tension, perhaps, with the earlier agreement. And then again, we're back at our cognitive problem or our classification problem. Is it a subsequent agreement for purposes of interpretation or is it a treaty conflict, properly speaking? I don't have an answer to that, but maybe I should mention that uh, straight up. I just want to flag those issues because in practice um, a lot depends on which box you put the problem in. Whether you put it in the treaty conflict box, whether you put it in the subsequent interpretation box, etc. Et so what we've already established is that there are basically two types of treaty conflict. One between identical parties, this is what in the literature is known as the ABAB type of conflict. States A and B have a treaty concluded in say 1980, they conclude a later treaty in say 1992. Which one prevails? Well, as we've seen, that's the simple scenario, the later in time shall prevail. And that makes perfect sense. So that's not Problematic. What is problematic though, as we've already seen, and now I'm getting back to that, is the ABAC variety. A and B have a treaty, A and C conclude a later treaty, which may not be compatible with the earlier one concluded between A and B. What to do then? Now, hypothetically, there are a number of different approaches one may choose to that problem. I'm not going to focus on that problem from now on because that's the most interesting bit and the most problematic bit. The others are fairly uh, straightforward. So I'm going to focus on the ABAC type of problem. There are hypothetically a number of possible approaches one may choose. One can choose, for instance, to solve those type of conflicts by hierarchy. And that is a point that is sometimes made in the literature. For instance, people claiming that a human rights treaty should always prevail over conflicting treaties. And typically a conflicting treaty might be a trade agreement, might be an extradition agreement, that sort of thing. 
The law, however, does not recognize that. As we've already seen, the only hierarchical solution that is recognized is um, when a treaty specifically claims or grants supremacy. The examples of the UN Charter and Article 351 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. But other than that, there is no specific category of treaties that is singled out for hierarchical treatment. Not human rights treaties, not disarmament treaties, not environmental treaties, not treaties to protect the global commons. All treaties are alike, as people say. Um, there are no hierarchical differences there. In addition then to the hierarchical solution, which as we've seen doesn't really uh, apply much, the second possibility is that of a harmonizing interpretation. If you have two treaties, one saying parties shall do X and the other saying parties shall do Y, then it might be possible to bring X and Y in line with each other. Interpret X a little bit unorthodox perhaps, interpret Y perhaps a little bit unorthodox to bring it in line with X and that would be perfectly fine, perfectly okay. That happens quite a bit in trade-related uh, treaty conflicts. Um, so it's possible, but there are situations where it's not possible. If a treaty says one shall do X and the other treaty says one shall do non-X or the opposite of X, then of course a harmonizing interpretation becomes very difficult. Now, a third possible approach would be to give priority to the treaty concluded first. We have, our, we have our situation, A and B have a treaty, A and C have a treaty, uh, later, a later treaty. One might think that A should have been aware of what it was doing, it should honor its commitments under the first treaty, because otherwise you give A a license to breach that first treaty, right? You would say to A, oh, it doesn't really matter that you have an obligation towards B. If you want a new one towards C, that's fine. That's not maybe something that the law wants to stimulate. Um, there is no case law supporting this, at least not much. There is one rather well-known um, separate opinion of Judge Van Eisinga in the aforementioned Oscar Chin case of 1934 who suggested that since the earlier treaty in that case was what he called of a constitutional nature, constitutional nature, therefore it followed that the later treaty was not supposed to depart from that earlier treaty. That goes back a little bit towards the hierarchy solution, suggesting that some treaties might be constitutional in nature and thus hierarchically superior. You can also see that as um, advocating that the earlier in time shall prevail. Either way, that is not the most popular solution. Because, of course, the drawback would be that you would create a very static situation. The treaties, um, it would be difficult to develop the law in accordance with more contemporary or more modern demands or requirements if you'd always have to apply the earlier in time. The advantage of doing so would be a certain stability and predictability. The drawback would be that you'd create a static situation, that the law would not be very responsive to changing political circumstances. Yet another approach, this is the fourth approach, I think, by now, 
is the Lex Specialis rule. It's a classic rule well known from uh, domestic law as well, suggesting that um, special law may derogate from general law. Now, there's a couple of problems with this. One is that the Lex Specialis rule is not to be found in any way or shape in the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. So advocating that rule, while it might make sense in certain circumstances, would have to overcome the obstacle that the Vienna Convention does not support it. Now, there are reasons why the Vienna Convention doesn't support it. It's, uh, it would be difficult to reconcile with the general nature of the Vienna Convention, which looks at treaties as formal instruments rather than as obligations. Uh, whereas the Lex Specialis rule typically says that one obligation would be special, whereas the other obligation would be general. So focusing more on the nature of the obligation rather than the nature of the instrument, whereas the Vienna Convention is written with a view to treaties as instruments. So in the framework, the intellectual framework of the Vienna Convention, the Lex Specialis rule has great difficulty fitting in. That's a bit of a theoretical problem, perhaps, if you will. There's also the more practical problem that the Lex Specialis rule might sometimes lead to counterintuitive results. Take, for instance, the type of conflict I already mentioned in passing between a human rights treaty and an extradition treaty. Typical scenario might be that of the Suring case, which, uh, was, which came before the European Court of Human Rights in the 1990s, where a German gentleman, I use the word loosely perhaps, um, found himself imprisoned in England, was wanted for murder in the United States. He had killed his uh, putative parents-in-law in the state of Virginia. It was clear that he would be, um, he could expect the death penalty upon extradition. So his lawyer went to the European Court of Human Rights claiming that the death row phenomenon, the prospect of spending 20, 30 years on death row, would be a violation of Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, a violation, in other words, of the prohibition of torture or inhuman and degrading treatment. So that's typically then a conflict between an extradition treaty, which was in existence between the UK and the US, saying thou shalt extradite upon request, and a human rights treaty saying thou shalt not extradite if that might result in inhuman or degrading treatment. Now, if you apply the Lex Specialis rule to this situation, what do you get? What would be the special treaty here? Not the human rights treaty, right? The special treaty here would be the extradition treaty. Special in that it has a far more narrow scope, and special in that it has typically only two parties, whereas the human rights treaty at issue had at the time 40-odd parties, I think. So the end result of applying the Lex Specialis rule would be to say, Sorry, Mr. Suring, your human rights are overruled by the rights of the United States to get this particular person extradited. And that's counterintuitive, right? You don't want to support, as a general proposition, the idea that human rights would be subservient to extradition, no matter how uh, nefarious Mr. Suring's activities were. And they were quite nefarious, apparently. The point I'm trying to make, though, is that this would be very counter intuitive, very morally unpalatable, perhaps. And that is a problem then with applying the Lex Specialis rule. Not only does it not fit in the systematics of the Vienna Convention, and it's left out for that reason, 
or partly for that reason, no doubt. But it also leads to counterintuitive results, results that we find difficult to reconcile with our ordinary sense of morality. So, with that in mind, I guess that leaves only one possible approach, and that is the lex posterior rule, the idea that the later in time shall prevail. But then we have a problem again. Think again of what the setting is. State A and B have a treaty. State A concludes a later treaty with State C. Under the lex posterior rule, the later treaty should prevail. The problem then, however, is that's nice for State C. It gets what it wants. It has this wonderful deal with State A. But it's not very nice for State B, right? State B loses out here. Now, why would State B, as a matter of principle, have to lose out to State C? There's no particular reason to justify that. And that's the typical problem then with treaty conflicts of this nature, treaty conflicts involving different parties. There is no principal reason that the law can say that one state should lose out to another. It's difficult to justify. And again, that finds its cause to some extent in how we conceive of treaties to begin with. This is again a theoretical point, but I thought I'd make it at any rate. So the, the Vienna Convention, the law of treaties generally, I guess, um, treats treaties as, in pompous Latin, uh, res inter alios acta, a thing between the parties. So a treaty between A and B is a thing between A and B, period. It's a little black box, if you will, with A and B in it. There's another little black box with A and C in it, also a res inter alios acta, also a thing between the parties and never the twain shall meet. That's the basic idea. Treaties are concluded between the parties and in international law with its horizontal structure. That implies that others have no business with your treaty. So effectively that means with the lex posterior rule that it is difficult to tell B that it loses out as a matter of principle to C just because C came later to the party. Uh, now I use the word party in a different sense, obviously. Um, so that can't be done. State B has the same sort of rights under the law of treaties as State C. And the fact that State C happened to be later in concluding a treaty with A should not have a bearing on State B. So we have a problem here. We have a stalemate and the law doesn't provide us with an answer. In fact, um, as a German scholar started to call it in the 1970s, all the Vienna Convention does in this type of situation is embrace what he called, and I'm going to use the German phrase because it sounds lovely, das Prinzip der politischen Entscheidung, the principle of political decision. See, it sounds better in German, doesn't it? Um, basic idea is that the law cannot choose whether to favor B or C, in this scenario, and therefore the choice goes back to A. State A has to make a choice whether to uphold its commitments toward B or to uphold its commitments toward C. That's typically a political decision, hence the principle of political decision. And of course the fallout is that State A then has to compensate the state losing out. If State B wants to honor its uh, State A wants to honor its commitments towards State C, then it should compensate State B. If 
it wants to honor its commitments to B, then it should compensate state C. So, that's a difficult situation. Um, and where does that leave us? So, we have this problem that state A will have to decide, will have to decide whether to uphold its commitments towards B or to uphold its commitments towards C and then, of course, compensate the other party. What goes into that decision-making process? Well, that's a difficult issue and, of course, it depends from case to case. Uh, it's very difficult to say anything in the abstract, but possible factors that go into the process would be things like uh, how much is it going to cost me to pay off B or pay off C? Um, how do I treasure my general relations with B or C? Does the treaty with C respond to a more pressing political or social or economic problem than the treaty with B? All that sort of questions goes in it. There's no ready-made answer to that. States will typically decide that on a case-by-case -case basis. The one thing that can be said in general, though, is, um, and I'm going to make another distinction again, sort of as a as a final court, if you will, that practice suggests that if a conflict between treaties falls within the same broad topic, it can usually fairly easily be solved. Think, for instance, of a conflict between two human rights treaties. Um, difficult to think of practical examples, perhaps, but you could imagine that the scope of a say the freedom of expression is broader under one treaty than under another. Uh, or that exceptions to the freedom of expression are more tightly regulated under one treaty than under another. Then typically what will happen is harmonization, as I already mentioned, the harmonizing interpretation, the balancing of rights um, typically would solve that sort of issue, as long as it remains within the same broad regime. Likewise, a conflict between two environmental obligations or two disarmament obligations can be solved without too many problems. The real conflicts arise not just when it's A, B, A, C, but also when the treaty with B relates to a different topic than the treaty with C. And this is problematic because here values may clash. The, the classic example nowadays is that of trade versus environment. What do you do in those situations? Do you prefer your trade agreement or do you prefer your environmental agreement? That also suggests, of course, that the really serious issues are not limited to uh, bilateral treaties, but take place in multilateral settings. Um, so when the values clash, we have a real problem on our hands. Um, trade versus environment, security versus human rights, that's also a, a well-known uh, example nowadays. And in those situations, um, the law doesn't really provide an answer. Now, of course, the lawyer in us would think, oh, that's a bad thing. We should have an answer for that sort of topic, shouldn't we? For, for that sort of problem, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Yes, we should, but then again, we don't, and we might as well come to learn to live with that. The indeterminacy, to coin a phrase, or to uh, paraphrase a phrase, I guess, the indeterminacy of 
the treaty conflict rules of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties have the advantage, I think, that they allow for renegotiation, that they allow for politics to enter back into a debate. And that's, of course, useful when values are clashing. What is it that we really want to protect? Is it our trade system or is it our environment? Is it our security or is it our human rights protection? Those are inherently political questions. And it's perhaps no surprise that when things are that inherently political, that the law has a hard time answering them. And maybe that would be a nice conclusion for this particular lecture. Thank you for your kind attention.